Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 378 of the podcast. It's July 29th, 2020. Joining me today are Christopher D. Chapman. He's a senior lean transformation coach at his company, Chapman Lean Enterprise. And we're also joined by uh, Dr. Valeria Sinclair Chapman. She's a social scientist and associate professor and director of the Center for Research on Diversity and Inclusion at Purdue University. So I was first introduced to Chris through his article that was published on the Lean Enterprise Institute's The Lean Post. And that article that he wrote was titled Lean In, Lean Thinkers to Root Out Racial Inequity. He also has a follow-up article there on the Lean Post called Our Burning Platform and Using the Five Whys to Think More Deeply About Corrective Action. And he has more articles to come. As he wrote in his first piece, lean leaders have a crucial role to play. We have long practiced and taught clients respect for people is the moral core of lean thinking. As the Lean Enterprise Institute states, leading respectfully not only improves business results, but also the lives of workers their families, their community, and ultimately society. So I reached out to Chris to see if he'd want to discuss his article here on the podcast, and he was quick to bring in his wife, Val, into the conversation, given her academic credentials and her experience working with organizations on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So today we'll talk about a number of things, including the intersection between lean transformation and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, Changing the culture of an organization is difficult, and it requires a willingness to call out problems as a starting point. So this is a different um, topic than other podcast episodes. I mean, it's much longer um, than usual because I I think, for one, this is an important discussion. Um, Talking with Chris and Val was very um, thought-provoking and and challenging for me, Um, but it was was also, um, dare I say, fun. And I I hope you agree as a listener. So I invite you to join us here on this topic might be outside of your comfort zone. Um, Admittedly, it was for me, but I think that made it all the more worth doing. So if you'd like to learn more uh, about um, Chris and Val, um, you can go to leanblog.org slash 378. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Uh, Chris and Val, how, how are you? Good, Mark. Thank you for having us. I'm glad we can um, have this conversation. Um, and in terms of introductions, um, you know, we start with uh, Chris because I, I met you first, just briefly, you know, by by a, a small margin. Um, can you share a little bit more about um, your background, your experience with Lean, and continuous improvement? Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, let, let me first say, uh, Mark, it's a pleasure to uh, be on with you. I've uh, been a fan of yours since uh, reading your book, Lean Hospitals. Um, oh, thanks. And so, um, yeah, it's just a pleasure to, uh, to um, discuss the article and, you know, some of the opportunities that we see uh, going forward to use lean process improvement and diversity, equity, and inclusion um, practices um, in combination to address uh, systemic racism. Mm-hmm. So my experience, um, you know, I, I should probably think back. Uh, the beginning of my lean journey 
uh, started in mid nineties. And so, um, I believe, uh, like you, uh, my lean journey started manufacturing. And so uh, in mid nineties, uh, I started out in uh, production management at Delphi Motor Systems, um, which as, uh, you may recall was just about the time Delphi was spinning off of General Motors. And so that was, um, a bit of our, uh, burning platform to, uh, begin, um, really embracing lean practices and implementing lean production systems. Uh, at that time, I had the uh, good fortune of uh, being on the team when uh, we were utilizing Jim Womack. So I uh, have fond memories of seeing him walk the Gimba uh, yeah. at Delphi. Uh, we also utilized Rick Harris, uh, the author of uh, Creating Continuous Flow. So, um, yeah, again, had the good fortune to uh, be learning uh, in an environment with, um, uh, I believe, some really strong uh, lean thinkers uh, there. Um, and as fate would have it, uh, at the time, we actually um, had the uh, pleasure of working with uh, Jim Luckman, uh, who was our plant manager at the time, and uh, he's a part of, you know, the LEI. Uh, Lean Enterprise Institute faculty. Um, so that's where my my lean journey began. Uh, from there, I went on to uh, Kodak, uh, where I earned my Lean Six Sigma black belt. Um, during my tenure there in um, production management, I uh, crossed paths with uh, Mark Haugen, who uh, another strong lean thinker. He was the uh, director for the Center for Excellence in Lean Enterprise at Rochester Institute of Technology. Um, I uh, facilitated, co-facilitated a rapid improvement event with Mark. And shortly after that, I joined his team uh, at the Center for Excellence in Lean Enterprise at RIT, where I um, was a senior program manager, uh, did a lot of consultation and training work in Lean Six Sigma, uh, trained green belts and black belts, uh, helped coach them through uh, certification and their projects. Uh, also did a lot of outreach, outreach work in manufacturing in uh, upstate New York. So um, uh, after that, um, I started uh, consulting on my own. Mm -hmm. um, I started uh, Chapman Lean Enterprise where I did more uh, consulting work. Um, uh, again, mostly in manufacturing, but, uh, also, uh, started to venture into healthcare and, uh, apply some lean thinking there. And then, um, I, uh, um, during that time, I also, um, worked as, uh, the director for the, um, Western New York, uh, consortium. Uh, for AME, the Association for Manufacturing Excellence. Um, and then here in the last uh, few years, um, I focused my energy uh, more in healthcare with the Lean Consulting Group um, based at, uh, at uh, Purdue University. And uh, now I'm back to uh, consulting independently. And, and I'm glad when we first um, connected that you, you very quickly uh, drew in Val for uh, for your expertise and, and your background. If you can introduce yourself to the listeners, your your academic background and, and, and about the work that you do. 
Oh, sure, sure. So um, I've been doing diversity and inclusion for probably half my life, which means I started, I don't know, when I was 15, not really. But um, so no, I think as at least an undergraduate in college is when I really started thinking about um, the difference that it makes to have people from various backgrounds working together for a shared goal, right? And so that's kind of how I understand what diversity contributes to outcomes. Um, and then we can add in both inclusion and equity, of course, um, which we'll talk about as the, as the, the time goes forward. But um, so I've been doing this work for a long time. What I'm doing right now is um, um, I'm a university professor at Purdue and uh, I teach political science courses. I study minority political representation. But what I'm really interested even there um, is diversity, how diversity works in institutions. Right. And so um, the work that I do, though, um, in consulting is really to transform spaces. So um, in one way, I'll work with undergraduate populations, graduate populations. Um, I try to create spaces where people feel comfortable, try to insist on inclusion as a means of bringing people together and of making people feel whole. When people feel whole, they can contribute. When people can contribute, they can help to transform. Um, and we can make space for everyone at the same table. And there's plenty of room. Um, and so that's the kind of approach that I take. Now I work with people who are doing, I'm trying to diversify, diversify STEM fields. We're really paying attention to increasing the number and share of women and women of color in particular in fields that are largely white and largely male. And um, that has important implications for who comes who comes behind them, right? So if we don't have role models, if we don't have accessibility, um, it has implications for that, but it also has implications for the kinds of problems that we're gonna solve. If we don't bring the people to the table, then they can't contribute, so. And as we'll, we'll talk about later, I mean, you know, there, there, there's a really um, special opportunity for the two of you to combine your different uh, experiences professionally. When, when you talk about transforming organizations, we use that word, uh, with lean, uh, at least as as a goal, you know, when we talk about respect for people, you know, I, I can think about you know uh, being inclusive, respecting people, um, you know, in particular, like not worrying about um, uh, degrees or formal rank or position within an organization, of being more respectful and inclusive. But we can build upon that. Um, so you know, I, I was wondering, Val, so, you know, first off, in terms of definitions. Um, you know, in, in a nutshell, for, for those of us who are still under, you know, learning what's really meant by these different terms of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, would you mind giving us just a, a quick synopsis sure. of in those terms? And sure. what's um, so when we think about diversity, um, one of the ways that I characterize it is it's, it's often visible. That's not the only way that you're going to um, experience diversity. But diversity is often a visible signal. Um, that is something that you see. So people are looking different than the way that they've looked before. Um, but it's also there are hidden diversities, right? So we can think about um, illnesses that people might have that we might that might not be immediately visible, but they also bring a diverse kind of perspective or experience to the table when we're interacting with each other. Um, we can certainly think of ways that we might have a a mistaken identity where something looks one way, but it's actually something else um, where maybe we don't know what 
racial background a person has and we make some assumptions or maybe we don't even know what gender a person has and we make some assumptions and so there are many ways that we can bring diversity to the table but often the biggest cue i think is is a visible one um and it matters to people they need to be able to see it um, um but it also can cause some contention it's not always easy okay so that's the diversity piece of it um, inclusion, what I often tell people is, boy, you think diversity is hard, try, try inclusion, right? Because inclusion really means that people are able to bring their full selves to a space that contribute, that there's a sense of belonging. So it is not just inviting people to the table, it is allowing them to make the menu, right? To, to set the table, to, to help determine who's invited, right? So when you have a, an inclusive space, you're bringing people in that can also make decisions um, and you have hopefully meaningful um, engagement. Um, equity, I think, is really a question. It's where I think the impatience comes from, you know, my goodness, we've been working on diversity for, for 30 years, 40, 50 years. You know, we can go back as long as you wanna go. Um, but in the workplace, we've been doing that. And so how are you going to then move from systems where we have now more diversity, it looks different to us, um, we're working on inclusion, but it still doesn't seem just, right? Mm -hmm. So let's move beyond um, diversity and inclusion to something that is more equitable. That is, are people actually getting a fair share? Are we distributing resources appropriately and, um, and equitably, right? And so I think those are some of the differences um, that we're, we're considering. Um, so we just expand a little bit on, on equity. I mean, you know, there, there's a phrase that's been used for, for many decades now, equal opportunity. And there, and there might be well-intended or even, you know, uh, effective to some extent countermeasures to create equal opportunity. But then when you look at the results of the outcomes and you see, look, there is still a great inequity mm -hmm. must be caused by something that leads us deeper into the discussion around, Right. Causes of equity, root causes, if you will, right? or inequity, causes of inequity. Right. If I may, one of, one of the things that we encounter, and Chris, you can chime in here, um, but certainly one of the things that we encounter is um, a debate about what's fair, right? So when you change a system, it will feel unfair to the people who've been privileged by it, mm -hmm. right? It might even feel oppressive to them. Um, but so, and what we know about institutions is that they are designed to protect the status quo. So if you're going to move from an inequitable system to an, a more equitable one, then you're actually going to have to disrupt the status quo. It is necessary. And that means that the individuals who have been privileged are going to have to experience some discomfort. And mostly what we try to do, I think, is that we try to, um, to minimize uh, the the risk or the discomfort that comes with change by protecting the status quo. And that means that we don't really change much. Um, and so what I say about um, Purdue, where we actually literally put a man on the moon, is if we can put a man on the moon, then surely this is a solvable problem, right? This is not dealing with um, equity and trying to move towards a more inclusive world and workplace cannot be more difficult than sending someone up through the atmosphere to land on, on a moon thousands of miles away. Yeah. So. Yeah. The, the, the moon problem, I mean, in a way, I mean, it, it comes down to a lot of math where societal cultural issues are very complicated. 
Right, right. No, but it's your true. point. Is there a will, right? We had a will right. to put right. a man on the moon. Is there will? Is there creativity? Is there ingenuity? Are we going to apply the resources that we need to do it? Are we actually going to be willing to live through the risk mm -hmm. and through the failures in order to come out on the other side? And if I may, one of the things that I love about this, this lean work, it's not obvious, it wasn't obvious to me that it would fit, but it's so brilliant um, as an opportunity because it's a system, right? One of the things that, that I really like about the idea of this, it's like um, what I would like to see are systems that work regardless of whether, of who's sitting in the seat, right? And I think that lean practices actually provide us with a system that can work regardless of how people are feeling that day. It doesn't rely on goodwill. It relies on principles of people coming together working in a dedicated fashion to improve over and over again and returning. And what I also really like about it is that you don't arrive at an end. Like you don't, one of the, the misconceptions that we've had, I think about a lot of diversity training that we come away saying, when it doesn't work or it doesn't mean anything is that there's not an immediate transformation, right? I've learned something new. I've learned about implicit bias. I've learned these things, but what happens next? And what we need are means to implement change with an understanding that um, it's, con it's constant, right? You're going to keep coming back to this because there's always room to make improvements. And so that's one of the things that I really am intrigued about with this enterprise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you talk about, um, you, know, uh, you know, finding a shared goal, I mean, it's more, it's more easy. It's easier for me to think about parallels in an organization. Let's say if there's mm -hmm. a lean transformation. And we're, we're, we're saying we're creating a culture where the people working in the shop floor are going to be heard. They're going to have a say. They're going to be making decisions that previously were made by managers. Sometimes managers feel a sense of loss. So, I mean, you know, um, how, how do we find shared goals where some people feel like they are losing in the equations? Managers are losing control or you know, um, you know, correct. Yeah, let, let you build upon this, but we think from um, um, a racial standpoint, if uh, straight white males like myself feel a sense of loss, how can we be good allies working towards shared goals, or how do we define a shared goal? What, what, what do you think? Who, me? Either of you, or both? <laughs> yeah, I think um, you know, and Lean, we've we've long practiced. Uh, really looking to our customer to help us define, you know, what our real purpose is. And, um, and so in trying to um, perfect that value stream, our process by which we go about servicing that customer uh, and really becoming a bit more clear about what is it that the customer wants and uh, how we go about providing that, whether it's a product or service, so I think as our customers um, become a bit more comfortable and uh, courageous, perhaps, in uh, clearly communicating to organizations what their expectations are around diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, I, I think most organizations um, will be forced to some extent to really grapple with okay, how do we go about providing services not only efficiently and effectively as we 
traditionally look at it from a lean perspective, but how do we go about transforming that value stream to look more like our very diverse customer? And so um, I think as you hear more and more companies come out and uh, CEOs and leaders uh, say that, uh, hey, part of our mission is to become a anti-racist organization. Um, I think for lean thinkers um, and diversity, equity, and inclusion professionals, uh, I think it presents a, a unique opportunity to come together and uh, begin identifying those barriers uh, for uh, black professionals and people of color that uh, enter into those value streams uh, with the intent of helping create value, you know, for those uh, organizations. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I'm excited about that aspect of it as I start to see more and more um, organizations, uh, customers, uh, step forward and say, hey, this is what we expect yeah. um, from uh, organizations that provide products and services for us. Yeah, I mean, I, I would add that um, that this moment is such a unique and striking moment. It's captured the attention of not only the nation, but the entire world. Mm-hmm. The entire world is responding to what we saw as a visual manifestation of disregard, right? At the very least, it's disregard that a black man could die under the knee of a white police officer whose motto is to protect and to serve, right? So so here we are in this moment where people can turn away and it presents an opportunity to begin a difficult thing, right? And so how do we then come to shared goals? Right. If we're going to do this big thing, if we're going to take this moonshot, then how do we come to a sense of shared goals? And, and one of the, the tensions, of course, is that people, well-meaning people are going to make mistakes. That's hard. That's a that's a difficult way to feel in that moment. Like uh, I didn't mean to offend or I wasn't intending it. I didn't, um, this is being misinterpreted. Those things happen. But the issue, of course, is that they happen to people of color and women every day. Right? This is a constant state of experience when you're marginalized, when you're operating on the margins, and where um, if there are not enough people who are like you in that space where you're always auditioning, but you never actually belong. Right, And so the work of transforming these spaces means now that we're actually going to share a little bit of that discomfort, mm-hmm. and we're going to share a little bit of the risk, and we're going to reinterpret how we are engaging with one another. And again, to kind of think about um, um, your opening example, if you think about managers and how now we have to share something with, um, share power, share authority, share making some of these calls. Um, I was thinking about it earlier. And again, what I really like about this approach is that it says that the experts are the people who are doing the work, right? right? That they bring in expertise that the other people just simply do not have. And they bring a perspective on problem solving that the other people in the group may not have. So if we pull them together, right? Then we're actually gonna end up with a better outcome. And that is again, another measure of diversity. So the diversity piece of it is already inherent in a lean um, systemic approach. Um, and I, and what's important about that is we know from, from literature, diversity brings a lot of challenges. I'm, I don't wanna suggest to anybody that this is a, you know, this is an easy road, 
right? But a lot of what we do that really matters and that's valuable to us is not necessarily the easy road, but it, the payoff is tremendous, right? So when you bring these uh, diverse voices and experiences together, the thing that you can get can be remarkable. It can also be, you know, you're going to have some errors along the way. There'll be some trial and some error. And I think that we have to devise systems that help us to walk through that. Um, I think Chris said something to me the other day. It was about the process and not the people. You remember that? Oh, yeah. You know, it's uh, what we uh, lead by, right? Uh, we're hard on the process and not the people. Right. So I think that holds true here as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. And, and, and thinking about systemic causes. Um, Mm -hmm. um, but um, what, what you, you reminded me, and, and Chris, you mentioned Jim Womack earlier, and I'm, I'm reminded of something I've heard him say a lot when you talk about what's easy. Uh, Jim would often say, you know, kind of disparagingly, but he'd say, well, you know, leaders will try all sorts of things that are easy but don't work before they'll try something difficult that does work. And so and maybe to explore... Out business, you know, even to talk in terms of business outcomes, um, it's easier. Part part of my reflection, on what you're saying, is that it's easier to surround ourselves with people who are very much like us. There's less risk of saying the wrong thing. There's the there's less risk maybe of being challenged in different mm -hmm. ways, right? So you know, Silicon Valley um, companies talk a lot about the dysfunctional, what sometimes you know, referred to as a tech bro culture. You know, mm -hmm. we're going to hire for fit. And then that leads right. to basically hiring people who went to the exact same schools, who look like you, who wear the same clothes, who use the same technology. And, and people in Silicon Valley, it's easier to diagnose the problem than it is maybe to come up with um, solutions. But those are just a couple of things that come to mind. Um, well, well um, homogeneity, right? That's what we're talking about. So seeing someone that looks like you, you don't have to... Um, you're going to minimize uh, the risk of harm to yourself. You're going to hopefully feel good because all day you're looking in the mirror, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, wow, don't I look great, right? And so, um, but the issue is that your customer, your client, the world that you're surrounded with, that is not the world that they are in. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, and it is uh, about cell phones. My thing is that if a woman invented the cell phone, first of all, it would have a hook at the top so I could hang it from a necklace, right? <laughs> it wouldn't be something that I had to hook to a belt buckle that I don't have. There would be purses that were designed immediately so I could fit it in there with, a, with my credit cards, right? It would make a difference. I mean, you all know those stories way better than I do about how design is reflected about the people who are the designers. So when we do that, we're leaving out a whole segment of the population that could benefit. We do the same thing in healthcare. We do the same thing in education. We convince ourselves in our own echo chambers that this is the only way that it can be done, mm -hmm. that we are not selecting on anything except for who is the best. Mm -hmm. But all of those things are path dependent on what has happened before them and it matters who got admitted to those programs, who was deemed to be valuable, who was elevated, who was promoted. All of those things count. And, and I think now that um, in some ways it's a responsibility. It's also a business imperative, mm -hmm. right, to do this um, and to really uh, harness this moment 
to move into the next century, into the, the next season that we have um, both nationally and internationally. Yeah. Um, so Val, can, can you elaborate on that business case for diversity? Because it would be, um, you know, it could be framed as a moral obligation, the right thing right. to do. We have similar conversations about safety in a workplace, right. physical safety. Um, but how, how do you help frame that as a, a business case and imperative? Well, I'm, I'm going to leave it to Chris to think about the safety part of it. That was right. that was that was uh, some some conversation that is very lean focused, right? Um, perfection, I think. But um, for me, uh, if I got that right, but for for me, the business case for diversity is this. So we went through a season, let's say, coming out of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. We went through a season where the focus on kind of change was both about a business imperative, but also about goodwill, right? So if we're going to be good people and we're going to be good citizens, then this is the kind of work that we do. And I think that goodwill is helpful. Goodwill is helpful. Um, but I'm not sure that it is either necessary nor is it sufficient. So let me clarify. Goodwill is important, mm -hmm. right? So I'm not throwing it out the window. But if we rely on goodwill, then when times get hard, Think about this moment now. We're in the middle of a viral pandemic and also um, social, racial unrest and concern. And so what will be sacrificed in this moment? Is it the, the sincere efforts and resources that were dedicated to diversifying our workplaces and our universities and our schools? Um, the the crisis is exactly the moment when you should not sacrifice those other things. Sure. Because if you do, the costs are so high. If, if you already have a gap, then you're only going to um, exacerbate it by putting it on the shelf in crisis. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the people who are going to suffer have already been suffering. So you're going to disadvantage people who have already been disadvantaged and then come back later and say, well, you have the same opportunity as anybody else, right? And that is your, your kind of you know, to go back to your earlier comment about equality and equity, right? Um, and so the business case for diversity actually says that it is um, focused on the bottom line of um, business goals, but it's also about, and it's not only about um, bringing in people of color to work with other people of color or bringing in women to work with the, the, the women in an organization or in the clients or the customers. It's actually much more than that. When you bring together diverse teams with people who have different racial or ethnic backgrounds, different gender experiences, different even regional experiences, they're going to bring also different um, experiences of work. They're going to have eyes that see clients differently. Um, I have to. Um, there's a great Harvard Harvard um, Business Review article. It's probably from sometime in the 1990s, I think. I wish I had it right in front of me. Um, but that it talks about this business case for diversity and it is lovely in that it says that when these people, when you bring together a diverse team, you actually are going to multiply the kind of outcomes that you get um, far more than would happen if it was a homogenous team um, that typically is seeing the world all the same way. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So. yeah. And I think we see that uh, similar kind of results when we think about pulling together cross-functional teams for Kaizen events. <laughs> and so when you um, have that cross-functional team that's made up of folks from the shop floor that are on the front lines of doing the work, um, when you may have supervisors or um, 
environmental health and safety folks that are part of the team, they're all looking at the same problem from different perspectives. And it's not just the implementation of the countermeasure, but uh, you have to think about the sustainability over the long term. And what I've found, I'm sure you've seen this as well, Mark, that when folks are involved in making that change, uh, they're a bit more on board to help sustain it over time. They don't feel like it's being done to them, but they were a part of making that change. And so I think that goes a long way as well as we start to uh, create more diverse teams Mm -hmm. um, with their own unique perspectives and problem solving. Mm -hmm. So maybe let, let's go back a little bit. There, there was a term, a word used earlier that, that um, merits, you know, some definition and exploration. Um, the, the, the idea of anti-racism or anti-racist. What first, you know, first off, what, it, what, what is that? Do you want to talk about this or me? Uh, you can speak to it. Oh, okay. Um, so um, anti-racism uh, is a way of approaching um, change or transformation um, with an understanding that it is not enough to say, I personally am not a racist, right? That is, is good. That is, that is a move in the right direction. It is directionally correct to, to quote this man to, to my right. Um, so, um, but it is, it is not sufficient to the task to say, I am not racist, if the systems that we are embedded in are, right? And so anti-racism or to be an anti-racist means that you are taking an active role. Mm -hmm. Um, When I am not racist, but the systems are, I pretend that that is a neutral solution, but it actually maintains the status quo in a way that continues the disadvantages that racism presents. And so to be anti-racist says, we will take an active role in dismantling racist policies, racist procedures, racist, um, or let me rephrase that because sometimes people, it's hard for people to hear the word racist. Um, Policies and procedures that consistently disadvantage some and advantage others, right? That is one way to think about it. Um, And so when that happens in, in, my field would typically would call that a discriminatory effect, right? Some are advantaged, some are disadvantaged. When that is uh, consistent in terms of the outcomes that we see, and we can't just have one or two outliers, that's not sufficient for this. Then we actually need to dismantle that particular policy, investigate it. Why is it like that? What is it doing? What purpose that it serve, does it serve? How can we make it so that the outcomes are actually more equitable? Um, I think that's uh, mm-hmm. about anti-racism, but you probably have some ideas too. Yeah, and I, w- I would just add what uh, I think is really exciting part of kind of joining forces with diversity, equity, and inclusion with uh, lean management um, systems is that uh, we traditionally look at that value stream and really look at uh, the process by which we go by to service customers, and when you start to look at it from the, the standpoint of uh, black professionals and people of color kind of entering that value stream, uh, and, you know, as lean thinkers, we can define that value stream, you know, from start to finish in healthcare, it's from admissions to uh, discharge, you know, and looking at every step in between. 
So when we start looking at value streams from uh, the pathway of that professional, uh, you know, from recruitment to onboarding to promotions, you know, that first, second, third promotion as they're working their way up the ladder, um, you know, we're identifying those barriers uh, to their flow. If you will, you know, we're typically looking at the flow of, you know, patients or products or services, but uh, we can also use our lean thinking to look at the flow of um, black professionals and people of color and uh, begin to uh, really do a deeper dive in to better understand what those barriers are, what those opportunities for improvement uh, are. And we can start to leverage uh, not just the leadership, but the staff and uh, black professionals and people of color that have been negatively impacted uh, by those barriers. Um, so I think our, our, our way of looking at uh, the system and the value stream provides uh, some unique opportunities uh, when we think about dismantling racism um, to really use uh, some of these tools that were um, that we've used in the past that are proven that we know work effectively, um, we can we can begin to to uh, unpack and dismantle uh, racism in a similar way. And and, and, well, and I was going to say, um, <clears throat> you know, I I'm, I'm the first to admit that I am very late to this cause. Um, and I, I think one thing that's been, um, you know, an awakening for me um, recently is, like, like, as you wrote about Chris and as you were saying, Val, it's not enough to, to be neutral. It can't be Switzerland in this. Right. And, and, and it's not enough to say, well, I don't say overtly racist things. Mm-hmm. I've been taught or I've learned that's bad. Don't do that. To not, you know, I could say, well, I don't do overtly racist things. But, you know, recently, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to look at, you know, there, there are clearly systemic problems that, that clearly affect others. And I'm trying to be more empathetic to that. Not be, you know, I, I, can, I can afford to say, you know, I don't want to think about systemic racism today. Right. You might not have that privilege. I mean, I use that word intentionally. I have, I have the privilege to say, well, um, yeah, I might be benefiting from it, but it's not my fault. That doesn't make it right. 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 I mean, I think it's incumbent upon, that's where diverse teams actually come together, right? That is where talking to people from, who are different from you. But more than that, honest, honestly, this is about leadership. It is about saying that this is what we're going to, this is the direction we're going in. We're not going to debate it. There's not an alternative to it. And not only are we going to go in this direction, we succeed at doing it. And that is possible. That brings in will and resources and perspective and opportunity and commitment to um, these kinds of problems. And, and to be, and to, one of the issues is I'm a good person. So there's no, you know, for someone to say this is racist, is that to say that, that you are not a good person or this, you know, John or Jane are not good people because this was racist. What I experienced was racist. And um, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to impugn your character. That's one of the ways that we deflect what is actually happening is Mm -hmm. that we say, how dare you 
right? Call me a racist. Mm -hmm. And the issue is I don't have to call you a racist, but I can say that this thing that you did is racist. There is a, 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 a scholar and activist who talks about it. Um, his name is Jay Smooth. And, and his issue is, you know, if, if you take my wallet, like we don't have to debate about whether you took my wallet. It feels bad to me if you took my wallet, right? Um, regardless of what your intent was. Um, and so if this, this thing that you did is racist, I don't know whether you're a good person or not, perhaps you are. But even larger than that, right? Even larger than that, our individual interactions, which is where we're typically gonna go, we need to be thinking about how things play out at a macro level, right? So then um, some of it is, is interpersonal, but if we are going to change outcomes, if we're going to transform workplaces, then we actually need to be thinking about the policies that create the outcomes that we see. And that is, that is the place that we need to tackle. And, and the truth, truth of the matter is that sometimes the people who we're dealing with who are experiencing it may not be able to envision as grand a goal as we need to actually transform it. But they need to be involved in the conversations related to it there are others that will also come into the room to say, hey, we can, we can push this even further. And I think that that, I hope that that is the moonshot moment that we're in right now, mm -hmm. that, that we're really trying to push things further. Yeah. And it's about, it's about policy change. Yeah. Now I would piggyback on that. Val mentioned it's about leadership. I would take it a step further mm -hmm. and say it reflects the level of leadership uh, within an organization not any different in my view than if you walked into a factory that uh, had, uh, you know, injuries through the roof and uh, it was unsafe work practices, had all sorts of OSHA violations. Um, they were contaminating, you know, uh, local water systems. Uh, that's a reflection of leadership and I think uh, lack of diversity, equity and inclusion Awesome. Uh, you would also consider that uh, a lack of leadership. Yeah. And, I mean, what I love about that example, Chris, is that we also would see then um, a spillover into communities, right? right. We would see a spillover yeah. into people's personal lives right. um, because we have let this kind of languish and, and, and fester. And now we see all of these outcomes that we, that we see in schools or in neighborhoods or communities. Um, that are evidence of these kinds of policies in workplaces, right? right? Or in higher education. Right. And I think it was Jim Womack that said in his newsletter that uh, if you help the worker, you in turn help that worker's family, you in turn help the community, you in turn help society. Right. So um, this right. is important work that uh, <laughs> needs to be done. Right. Right. One, one parallel maybe to explore for a second. Um, you know, we talk about leadership and environments and Chris, you and I have this mid nineties General Motors, probably, you know, some pretty shared experience. And mm -hmm. I, I think back, you know, um, not in the context of, of racism, but working for leaders who were kind of that classic yelling and screaming, blame the workers for everything that was right. quite clearly a systemic quality problem, you know, yell and spit and scream and swear and, um, in a, in, in, in a, you know, in the first year and a half of the two years I was at General Motors and I still have thoughts to say like, well, that leader, that he was a bad person. Mm -hmm. Look at the way he was behaving. That must be evidence of bad character and he's disrespectful of people. 
Um, I was out with a group of friends one night uh, out to dinner at some restaurant and I looked across and I was appalled and there was that guy I'm like, oh no, he's invading my personal life. He was you know, apparently out to dinner with family, multi-generations. And I'm like, this guy seems pretty beloved out here in a social <laughs> setting. And he actually right. he turned around to drink sober. And I'm like, okay, I'll see you on <laughs> Monday. Take, uh, take more abuse. But, but the, the, the thought or the parallel, the reason I'm sort of detouring down memory lane there is I think over time, I've come to understand that his behavior was the product of a system that General Motors organizational culture that he was swimming in for 35 years. And so as I've been trying to read and understand systemic racism, there seem to be parallels where instead of labeling, well, good people aren't racist, bad people are racist. We are all swimming in a culture that we've been raised in. And I don't want to, I don't, correct me here. I mean, this probably isn't the right way to say it, but say like, well, that behavior is not their fault. They're the product of a system. Like to what extent is that true when it comes to things like racial bias or prejudice? I, I think it's, I think it's on the money. I, uh, I think I would tweak it just a bit to say yeah. that um, this is not a system necessarily that you created, but it, if it is one that you benefit from, then you have a responsibility mm-hmm. to open it up. Right. And so um I think that then the the blame and the fault, they're less relevant to actually the the goal, the intention of changing it, right? Um, With a clear objective at the end of it. Um, And that is that we should see something different at the end than where we started. And some of that is gonna be measured in diversity. Some of it hopefully will be measured in inclusion and then we ought to also see more equitable outcomes. And if we can work through those things, then we will. We are moving certainly on the right path. And so, so yeah, I, I think it is. Um, some people are not really good people, right? So we also need to recognize that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the issue is, is that we should not, in order to make these changes happen, I think we need to 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 devise approaches that both require some self reflection but don't rely only on self-reflection. The example I give is the question, how many of us are still using transparencies and overhead? None, right? In part because you can't find the transparency paper in my front office anymore. And I think they removed the overhead projectors from the classrooms, right? And so there are ways that we are nudged and moved to take certain kinds of of steps. And and, um, organizations, workplaces, classrooms, departments. That's the kind of work that I think that we need to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Chris, did you have something on that? Um, yeah, I think, again, it, it, it goes back to uh, leadership. Um, in the work that we do, we realize that if leadership isn't on board, uh, they don't have a vision and mission for continuous improvement, then uh, you might have some successes here and there, but uh, you typically won't sustain it. So uh, leadership's got a key role to play. Um, Certainly uh, the kind of cadence that you establish in cycling through plan, do, check, act of uh, the kind of transformation that lean thinkers are accustomed to uh, reviewing on a regular basis, uh, looking at those A3s, ensuring that you know, we ran that experiment, this corrective action to address this particular problem, this is the improvement, 
this is what we learned. And then, you know, kind of scanning the, the entire organization for opportunities to spread those lessons learned. Um, that's, that's a reflection of leadership. And that doesn't happen without leadership. So um, diversity, I think, falls into a similar kind of a category um, that leadership will be key in uh, making that successful. Well, and, and let me just add one more thing, and that is that in the case of the, the really angry, I haven't, I haven't worked in a workplace like a shop floor. I'm thankful because you guys tell some horror stories that, frankly, to me on the outside, they're mildly entertaining. I'll just say that. Like, I'm, I'm amazed at that. But um, I think one of the points is that you might not be able to change that person's kind of their approach, right? Maybe you can, you can, uh, can help them to, to talk a little more quietly, but you might not change their hearts or their minds. But there do have to be consequences for behavior and for choices and for decisions that go against this new goal that we're setting. And that, I think, is, is part of leadership, but it's also part of devising new policies and new approaches that actually give you the outcome that you want. Again, that's why I don't have, that's why I use PowerPoint and not uh, uh, transparencies. That's why I teach online now, right? I'm, I'm learning a whole new skill set because of the demand that's in front of me. And that, that I think, is the moment that we're in. Yeah, and I would just piggyback on that. You know, in the lean community, we say no problem is a problem. And so as leaders and organizations, if you're thinking, hey, I'm not racist, we have all good people here, then uh, that's probably a reflection of uh, uh, a significant blind spot <laughs> that uh, we need to take a second look at. So, um, you know, when it comes to leadership, you know, Chris, you're, you're being a leader in, you know, stepping forward and, and, and taking in some ways what might be a risk in uh, writing you know, there's now two articles um, for the Lean Enterprise Institute to bring up issues that um, are going to be uncomfortable to people, um, myself included, to be honest. I'm trying to, you know, it, it, it's uncomfortable to look at what happens um, to people. And as you're, you know, as you're saying, no problem is a problem. Let's say if somebody were to come to a plant manager in their corner office who never goes to the shop floor, again, I'm thinking 25 years ago, to say, there's a big safety problem out here. It would be easy for the plant manager to say, no, there isn't. Mm. And, you know, I think in the analogy, it's in my head, I am that plant manager. If somebody were to come and say, I'm being treated unfairly and unjustly because of the color of my skin, I'm in no position to say, no, I've, I don't see that happening. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm, you know, I'm, can you kind of elaborate on, you know, the things in society or even personally that, that sort of led you to come forward and, uh, and write this and continue writing and, and sort of trying to rally lean thinkers around this for us. Yeah, sure. sure. Um, I, I would say a, a few things uh, happened. Uh, late last year, um, professionally, I found myself on the receiving end of uh, um, uh, some racist, uh, what I would describe as discriminatory uh, actions. Um, and I, I found myself walking away from that uh, incident and I won't get into a lot of detail here. Um, but I will say that, uh, part of the, my motivation to writing these articles were both, uh, personal, uh, had experienced, uh, some discriminatory actions where I walk away from the experience feeling like, uh, 
really scratching my head to some extent because um, a white manager uh, at this particular organization had exercised what I consider to be um, just an overwhelming use of force and power to address a matter that I was involved in, but he didn't bother to have a discussion with me about it, that he had prejudged me and then gone from zero to negative 60 in, <laughs> in, in a matter of moments, you know, and, uh, and when I escalated the matter um, to upper uh, management who were um, also two white males, um, they turned a blind eye to it. And so I was kind of grappling with my own personal experience with racism in the workplace. Um, and then um, the Aubrey, um, Ahmad Aubrey uh, situation uh, unfolded, the deadly um, uh, encounter, an incident happened. And then um, there was Brianna Taylor and then ultimately uh, George Floyd. And I think like most Americans and uh, citizens around the world, you know, that just made me really stop. And, um, you know, it felt like a punch in the face and a knee in the gut. Uh, um, and uh, just really started to question, you know, obviously um, that's not the America we want to live in. It uh, doesn't reflect our, our greater values. And uh, I think like most people, I was questioning, hey, what could I do um, to make, uh, make this a better place? And so since uh, 2001, I've been writing articles, lean articles. Uh, so that's something I already did. Um, I also write to kind of un to, uh, unpack and sort out my own personal feelings. So it's a bit therapeutic for me. So um and I think once I saw the newsletter from uh, LEI, um, basically stating that, uh, you know, they were going to uh, do some self-reflection and uh, aim to uh, do what they could to dismantle racism once and for all, um, I thought, you know what, uh, I, I'm going to make that pledge as well. And so I started to write, Val and I started to talk a bit more. And, um, you know, we thought that, hey, we, we can do something here. We can make a difference um, using lean and diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that's, that's really how it came about. Can I add to that just a little? It wasn't my experience. Chris, mm. Chris probably like, what is she going to say? But, but, um, but just, to, just to see that moment um, um, and the kind of ripple effects it has across a, a family, but as someone who, who does diversity and inclusion work, um, it really, in Chris's case, it matters who is given the benefit of the doubt. Mm. Who's given the benefit of the doubt? Who can make a mistake or give a have a chance to have a conversation about something that might be misinterpreted? And that is deeply related to power, right? And then um, value. So whose perspective or experience is valued in a space is also deeply related to power. And it can be highly correlated with the race of uh, the color of a person's skin, their, uh, their, their sex, their gender. All of these things 
can have an impact on how valued they are, how credible they are viewed to be, um, whether or not they are given the benefit of the doubt, um, whether who is responsible, right? Who I need to trust, who I need to support in this. Is it happenstance that all of the people that Chris was working for were white men, right? Um, that's not, the odds are, are Randomly, we ought to at least see um, outcomes that reflect the percentages that we have in the population. If we're not seeing that, mm -hmm. then it is not random. And something has actually moved in a way to advantage some and disadvantage others. And I think the other thing is, um, what was interesting there is a question of whose responsibility. Um, even in this, I think you're right that, that when a person of color actually comes forward to voice this, they are climbing over a bunch of barriers to say aloud what they have been contending with for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and that also needs to be valued and, and, and respected. Um, you know, and, and there are lots of, of ways to approach things. It doesn't mean that, that every case, every incident, you know, this person is always right. It doesn't mean that. Right. But it does mean that we need to take seriously and hear what is coming to us as leaders in organizations so that we can we can end up with outcomes that are that are an improvement over where we are. What we don't want is for people to be falling into the streets again in five years, right? We we want to at least be moving forward, right? And not standing still, right. I think. And in my personal situation, I didn't feel heard. And certainly as I looked around for allies, right, uh, they just weren't present. And so again, um, obviously that's not the sort of place I want to do business with. I'm no longer there, but, um, if I can, uh, utilize my skill set to help improve the processes again, and the policies that would allow something like that to happen, uh, then I'm on board and, and I want to be involved. Well, and one more thing, those blind spots are costly. Absolutely. They're costly. So, so what you lose in those moments is talent. If you're in a talent war, they have lost the talent that you provide, right. the perspective, the right. innovation, right. the right. experience that you bring to the table, right. all over a, a kind of a power move that went unchecked. And, right. and that, I think, is what, you know, if we go back to the business case for diversity, that is part of it. And again, one of the things that I think is really important about um, doing kind of thinking through lean is that we do a lot of, of training. There's a lot of diversity training. It is important. There are ways that we need to see the world differently before we can take action, right? So you need to do some self-reflection first. Um, but how do we actually implement change? How can we pay attention to it? How can we measure it? I think that that lean tools or, or, or lean practices are some of the ways that we can we can do that. And, and for lean thinkers, we can relate to that as well. Right. Uh, many of us started out in lean where the focus was on training and getting folks certified, green belt, black belt, lean leaders, lean experts, and uh, only to find out that, hey, there was some initial success. You know, if you were implementing, you know, corrective actions and Kaizen's and the like, um, but you weren't able to sustain it. And then uh, through plan, do, check, act, you know, <laughs> you realize that, hey, we've got to do something more here. We need to establish uh, more of an operating system uh, by which we're going to uh, run the business and make continuous improvement uh, part of how we, we operate. And so I think uh, diversity 
experts are, are finding a similar kind of uh, right. There's an uh, lesson there that uh, yeah. there's more needed. Than, I think uh, some of the dots I would connect when you talk about the training thing, like I go into a hospital, the, there's a bias from the leaders in power that often unsaid that the problem is the workers. So therefore, we're going to send the frontline healthcare workers to this lean training to make them lean. And then the executive shows up, says something for 40 seconds to, to kick off the session and then shoop, out of the room. And I don't ever understand the hypothesis of we're giving a lot of lean training, which isn't bad, but probably insufficient. How is that going to change the systems that, going back to Dr. Deming, would say, Senior leaders are responsible for the systems and systems drive behavior. The Shingo Institute and, and those lean models would say that systems drive results. And yeah, I can see where there's a parallel of like, well, we're, we're, we're going to train our employees to not be racist. Does that really? <laughs> right. Does that really? Right. I mean, what I, what I love is, is the conversation that, that, said recently about safety and I thought this is crazy like we're not gonna have any what was it no safety problems that, that the story that you told me recently like we're gonna go down to zero um oh the um you're gonna go down to zero accidents mm -hmm. right um and I thought that's ridiculous. Like, how can you how can you do that? It is such an audacious goal. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 habitual excellence. It was well, the post right. that. The uh, yeah. 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 But but if you're just lecturing people to not get hurt, that's not going to be effective. <laughs> right. right. Maybe pressuring people to stop reporting safety problems, just like we wouldn't want people to yes. stop reporting instances right. of discrimination. Right. Just to hit a zero discrimination reports target. Right. We've got a right. we've got a lead. Like you like you're saying, it comes down to leadership. Right. 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 And I actually think that you said something really important that it shouldn't always be the people of color that have to raise these issues. In fact, mm -hmm. the most important people to raise some of these issues, even at risk of getting it wrong, are the white allies in the room, men and women in the room who can say, wait a minute, I think that what I just saw. Um, is problematic, it's, it's racist, or it's sexist, or it is homophobic, right? Um, and so those are the safest voices in the room. So we shouldn't always rely on the most vulnerable people to bring our attention to the thing that is actually, um, that has made them feel unsafe or more vulnerable in a space. And I think too, that, um, it is really important that the notion of, of people kind of hiding or, or putting things aside to protect themselves, we, that does require leadership to say, these are the things I want you to bring to my attention. I want you to bring these to my attention so we can actually change them because we, we don't want it to look better. We want it to be better. And right. I think that that's, that's where we're headed. And I think we can learn from Toyota in that regard as well, you know, as they think about identifying waste. It's not something to hide, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, right. It, it's actually, uh, you know, to some extent, reason for, um, you know, certainly not with uh, racism that you would celebrate uh, identifying this, mm -hmm. this opportunity for improvement, but it is just that, an mm -hmm. opportunity to improve. So um, I think uh, when you look at it that way, um, it's, it's a positive, not a negative. Well, to be aware, I think, I think to be aware 
in, into the, the thing is we're not looking for the the race police or the sexism mm-hmm. police like that you know it's hard for anyone to live in an environment where everything is you know a minefield right so I, I don't think that that's what we're looking for we're not looking to be in a space again this is one of the things I like about lean because you're really looking at processes and you're bringing people along. Now, if the people that you're bringing along can't contribute or refuse to, to do the work, then that is a different set of issues. But but that means that you're not always walking on eggshells. You're really saying, hey, I'm here to learn. I'm gonna make some mistakes. Let me try to figure this out. And that happens on all sides. As we learn how to, to as people who have typically not had voice or not had opportunity or who have been excluded move into these spaces, they are gonna make mistakes too, right? And so we need to have enough grace in these endeavors that we can persist to the other side. We do it with anything else. You know, we do it with anything that we test, that we try, and that we, we, we make mistakes on. I, and I'll say this, um, this one more thing. If you go back to a hospital example, um, one of the things that I see sometimes in my meetings, not at hospitals, but I think about it in the same way, is the kind of deference that a nurse will have perhaps to a doctor mm-hmm. or to some senior administrator. Now the nurses are on the front line. They see exactly what's happening. They are also the most at risk because if something goes wrong and it has something to do with them, they are out the door. The doctor gets to stay, the administrator gets to stay. So they are the most at risk of bringing something forward the least powerful in the space. And now we're saying, hey, we're going to need for you to speak up. Tell me how that works, right? <laughs> that is the process that we need to disrupt and, and, and shift. So in any case, and I see it in my own spaces. And I love it. I had a, a white colleague of mine. We were, we were doing work recently in a, in a college campus, and a dean started talking about what it meant to be a leader and all of these things. And it was really a deflection from the conversation we were having. And after we were done and we had a debrief, she called me on it. And she said, you let him get away with it, right? Mm-hmm. And I said to her, I am so grateful that you have said this to me because I need to be aware of the ways that I will be deferential to authority and to power as well. And we all need allies that are willing to do that because we're differently situated. I will say this um, one more thing that none of us is without power, right? I don't think that any of us is without power. One of the ways that, that people sometimes enter into uh, this diversity effort is with pity or with you know shame for, to, for themselves. And now they want to go out and rescue somebody. That is not the enterprise that we're in. Again, if we go back to lean systems, this is not about feeling sorry for the guy that's working on whatever this machine is, right? Or for the engineer or for the mechanic. Like we don't feel sorry for that person. We actually say, hey, we need to hear from you because if we don't, we're not gonna be able to actually solve this problem. So it's not a matter of saving. And it's also, we have to be careful about um, requiring or expecting people of color or women and particularly women of color to rescue. It is one of the ways that's in the back of our heads. I'm a university professor, and as a woman of color in that space, I often have students who, who um, and we see it in the, in the data of evaluations, um, students who will criticize me because I'm not kind enough, right? Or because I'm not, I'm not motherly enough in the classroom. They never expect that of their male teachers, and particularly of their white male teachers, right? They, their professors, in that case, they expect them to be distant and exacting but if i do that then i'm actually 
boy, she is, there are all kinds of names that could come up, right, about what this professor is, but, but there's, they're, they're not kind, right? They're, they're critical. And part of that is how I'm situated. It doesn't mean that I don't have power in that space, but I'm also evaluated differently. And I think that that is another thing that we need to be able to, to, to take account as we move forward. Let, let, me, let me ask, um, you know, we, 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 we you know, talk about the names and the moments that catch people's attention. George Floyd killed by the police. Brenna Taylor shot and killed by the police in Louisville. Ahmaud, Ahmaud Aubrey killed by white civilians when he was out jogging. And then there's, you know, so when you talk about people abusing power, we can talk about the police abusing power, whether they're white police or otherwise, but then there's there's maybe this more insidious power. And I think that's where the case of, of, of Christian Cooper is an interesting one because thankfully he was not killed, but it, it's, it's a much more subtle situation. And correct me if I, if, if I have any of this wrong, but he was um, in a, in a park in New York, a black man, Christian Cooper was there to do bird watching. Right. And there was a, a white woman whose dog was not on a leash and he, he said something mm-hmm. and kind of called her right. on it. Right. And she, it seems retaliated by calling the police and lied and said a black man was threatening her. Right. So can, can you share some perspectives on, on why that was perhaps such a dangerous thing for that yeah, white let woman me, to do? Yeah, let, let me start and then maybe Chris can chime in. Um, and, and part of what happened in that moment is that Christian Cooper is not only a bird watcher, he is on the bird watching, like the, I'm blanking on the, the word, but he, he is on this. He's a leader in ornithological. I love it because we lived in upstate New York and that, you know, Cornell has an ornithological um, yeah. center um, at Cornell University. Um, but yes, yeah, so he, he is on, he is a leader in this group and he was there bird watching in the early morning and dogs are supposed to be on leashes mm-hmm. and her dog was not. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he points out the sign that's put Right. Well, and, and part of it is that it is important that birds, that dogs be on leashes because there are all of these various species of birds in this, in this park, in, in, in this part of Central Park. And birds have, a, I mean, dogs have a tendency to, to, to run them out and to, um, and to, uh, to, um, and birds have, I mean, dogs have a tendency to run the birds out of those spaces. And so he's really trying to be protective. He doesn't want them under the bush. Um, so here, what I see in this dynamic is a person out of place. So let me, if, if I may, just a few minutes, mm-hmm. is that for Amy Cooper, um, Christian Cooper, no relation, of course, is a man who's out of place. Right in multiple kinds of ways. First, he's a bird watcher. A black man is a bird watcher. Really, right? Um, the second way that he's out of place is that he speaks with authority to her. Mm. He has it. He speaks with authority. What is this? Who are you? How are you speaking to me about this? Maybe she did feel threatened, but it was in a way that is really because. This situation is unfamiliar, and when I see you, I think that you're supposed to do what I say, not the other way around, right? So for Amy Cooper, then she says, if you don't leave me alone, this is not her words, this is me paraphrasing, 
I am going to call the police and you know what that means. And that is an exercise oh, of gosh. privilege, right? Right. right? That is that becomes the um, the kind of insidious and implicit threat that Christian Cooper is supposed to understand and step back from, yeah. right? I will scream, I will call the police, I will be believed and you will not. And this is over whether or not she should put her dog on the leash. And what it comes down to is who has the authority to speak with confidence in this interaction. And for her, it was clearly not Chris Cooper. And, and, and she was willing to actually put him at risk, recognizing that in anger, right? It was a moment of anger. Now, if you fast forward, Chris Cooper said, I mean, so Amy played, Amy Cooper paid a high price for it. I mean, even going as far as to lose her dog, but she lost her job. She was spread across all these newspaper pages. Um, and so, but, but Chris Cooper says at the end that he is, he feels like there is something much bigger than merely Amy Cooper here. And so he, in order to get to that much bigger issue, he doesn't want to only make an example of her. Like it's not over when Amy Cooper is prosecuted or when Amy Cooper loses her job because it's not only about Amy Cooper, it's about how people move through spaces, who they can hear, um, how they can understand it, who can exercise authority and power. And that's, that's part of what we're confronting. And those are the kind of, um, the big and small ways that we're going to have to deal with navigating um, um, this new um, kind of reality that we're in. Yeah. And I think it does reflect um, her beliefs mm -hmm. that I'm superior right. to right. Chris Cooper. How dare he, you know, <laughs> tell me to put my dog on a leash. Um, so I think it does really reflect the ugliness of uh, her beliefs about mm -hmm. who's superior in that situation. And he was clearly from her perspective out of line. And she was willing to call the police and fabricate some story of being in danger uh, to put him back in, in his, his, his place, place, which right. she saw as inferior to herself. So. But it's not unusual. There was a story recently in Indianapolis of a black man who was at the pool in his um, complex, um, but it's a high-end complex. We see these stories all the time. Mm -hmm. Do you belong here? Right. Do you belong here? Trayvon Martin. Yeah, you know, right. In a but, gated community. Yes, yeah. in a gated community right. that his father lived in. Do you belong right. here? I don't know you, so you can't possibly belong here. You are an outlier. That those kinds of experiences are so insidious. And Chris and I, I mean, we have two black sons. We have to help them navigate a world where people will wonder, perhaps, do you belong here? And what we tell them is that the world is where you belong. You can go anywhere in the world that you want to be. But we also know that you are going to experience this differently than some of your friends do, right? And so we, you are going to have to learn this early. And for me... I wonder personally, like when my son walks down the street, sure. you know, do people wave at him? Do they treat him like a 14 year old? Cause he's a kid. Right. And I, I like to think that they do in, in our neighborhood. I do. I, I really do. I, I think we have genu genuinely great neighbors, but what I'm saying is, are there, what are the subtle ways that he experiences being different, but only or primarily because he's black. 
and he's male. And by definition, then, it's threatening. There's a, 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 a really important book called um, Whistling Vivaldi, right? And it tells a story of, of a graduate student um, at Northwestern, I think, or University of Chicago, and how a black male and how he, you know, he'd be walking down the street and women with white women would grab their purses or they might cross the street or they might get quiet. And so um, and this is in, in Chicago. So he started whistling classical music. He started whistling Vivaldi. And when he started whistling Vivaldi, people began to smile at him yeah. instead of trying to distance from him. And this was the work that he had to do in order to reassure people that he was quote unquote safe. So even upon seeing him without knowing anything about him, and that that is part of what I see with Amy Cooper, she could not know that Christian Cooper was who he was. Um, she 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 didn't know it, but she didn't even bother to imagine that it was possible. And that's part of and and so I mean it. You know, I, 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 there are some people listening, you know, you said earlier, some people don't like the word, hearing the word racist. Mm-hmm. I know there are white listeners. If after more than an hour, they're still listening, maybe not, but people <laughs> are still going to cringe at a phrase like white privilege mm-hmm. and get defensive and push back on that. But what you're describing, let me frame it in terms of waste. Here's maybe my reflection is that I do not spend one moment of any day worrying about or people are looking at me, or people looking at me like I don't belong. Mm-hmm. I don't have. I'll frame it in terms of the waste of of time. I'm not spending about that. Is time I can spend on right. productive endeavors. Mm-hmm. Frankly, right. So I mean, you think of it as a tax on people's time that I don't pay. Right. Because mm-hmm. I'm not having to think about that or guard right. against that or put defensive measures in place. I get to just be myself and mm-hmm. I get along just fine. Right. right. And so that's where, I, you know, it's, 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 yeah, it's just, it's hard to hear the stories of, of someone else's reality. Mm-hmm. And, and all, all I can do is just try to listen to that and be empathetic to it. And then we can start thinking about what can we do to start creating better organizations in more just societies. Like you use the word gap. Mm-hmm. Val. And so we use that word a lot, Chris and others in Lean. We right. talk about identifying a gap, identifying a problem. How do you ask, what, what do we want the country to be? That's defining an ideal state mm-hmm. or at least a future state. We might not get to perfection, but we're going to work toward it. And we've got to understand causes. We've got to try to come up with some countermeasures and actions. What can we do? So maybe, you know, th- maybe that brings us to kind of a closing discussion of, again, you know, combining your backgrounds and experiences and expertise, Chris and Val, lean management systems, diversity, equity, and, conclu- and, and inclusion, how to combine approaches to come up with, as you already addressed, more than just training. What, what are some actions or recommendations um, that, that can help move things forward? Well, I think... Um and, and Val and I, when we thought about this, uh, one thing that came to mind for me uh, back when I was at uh, RIT, um, we were working with uh, a group of um, uh, environmental health and safety uh, specialists uh, to create a toolkit 
uh, for lean and environmental uh, toolkit for the EPA. And um, that was something that obviously lean thinkers and lean practitioners couldn't do alone. So we partnered with environmental uh, health and safety uh, professionals uh, to help us identify, you know, those opportunities for improvement to, to not only identify, you know, waste from a lean perspective to improve uh, flow of value streams and such, but uh, to also identify those uh, environmental and energy uh, types of waste. And so I, I, I think we have a, a similar opportunity here um, to partner with uh, professionals like uh, Valeria here that have, you know, spent uh, uh, careers uh, looking at race and diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, lean thinkers like myself have spent a lot of time looking at uh, value streams and engaging uh, leaders and workforces to uh, transform their business environments. Um, so I, I think there's, there's a, uh, a wonderful opportunity here to begin looking at that value stream um, together. Um, so as we look at the entry uh, from recruitment through the entire pathway of the journey of an employee, um, paying particular attention to the underrepresented and understand how they flow through that process and having a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert also look at that to help us identify, um, you know, those barriers. Uh, we know how to go about measuring, you know, its impact on, um, um, uh, you know, employees or patients or products. Uh, I think we can do a similar thing here as we compare, you know, the flow through that value stream um, when we look at uh, black professionals as well as people of color compared to uh, white colleagues flowing through the same process and better understand those disparities, what uh, some of the barriers are that we can remove and uh, dismantle uh, to create a more um, uh, equitable and fair and just uh, uh, experience and pathway uh, for those. And so um, I think uh, Dr. D'Angelo, the author of White Fragility, mm -hmm. uh, described um, kind of black uh, uh, um, experiences, one um, like swimming against the current and, uh, and the white uh, person, you know, having uh, challenges, no doubt, but uh, swimming uh, with the current. Right. And so um, as we begin to take a closer look at uh, those value streams that we're all, you know, a part of, um, I think we can, we can begin to identify those opportunities and uh, pull very diverse cross-functional teams together um, to help identify problem solve, identify root causes, and implement uh, countermeasures that um, will create uh, this, this more uh, fair and just kind of work environment. If, if I can, I agree. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I guess I want to go back to the business case, right? Because a lot of this sounds like goodwill, like justice and 
and, and equity. Like these are big terms, fairness. Um, and, and they are important, no doubt, but this also affects your, your bottom line. So one of the things that I was thinking about if, as you all were talking is um, um, disparities in infant mortality, for instance, or disparities in um, maternal uh, death rates, right? And so, or, or disparities in, in the time of COVID-19. How is it that these things are happening that we see racial and ethnic and, and class disparities in who lives and who dies? And that is about the ways that um, our healthcare system operates. And so what if it made sense to bring people in to diversify those teams that are making decisions um, so that we can remove some of the blind spots? Part of it is that when you have a more diverse team, they are going to be looking for and seeing other things, right? Um, I think one of the most important books for Lean is Learning to See. I think that's an important kind of thing. We all need, I don't know anything about Lean, let me tell you. Well, I know a lot more about Lean than I probably should, but not enough, right? Because um, I've been hearing about it for 20 years. Yeah. That's, that's part of the learning <laughs> process. So I'm learning more. <laughs> So I've been hearing snippets for, for 30 years or something yeah. like that. And so, but certainly um, this business case, that hits at your bottom line. What kinds of outcomes do you actually want to see? And what you want to see is improved outcomes for populations that have been um, um, more than disadvantaged, but are certainly um, are actually experiencing less than uh, the quality that we would expect that your other clients, some clients get really good service and other clients apparently don't. Right. What can we do to write that ship? And I think that diversity um, and equity and as, as importantly, inclusion will help us get there. Um, and I think we'll see it in, we can see that in classrooms, hospitals, um, and other kinds of decision-making. Um, so. And I think more of the customers just demanding it. Yeah. Yeah. So let me let me ask one other question. It comes to mind, and while while we're on this topic, I've I've, I've got to ask it because I'm I'm sure um, I want to hear your thoughts, Chris, as a consultant in this space, and and Val, your thoughts in terms of like if you're advising an organization in terms of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm not I'm not speaking on behalf of any of the major lean conferences, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but as an attendee and as somebody who has spoken at these conferences, it is hard not to notice that um, if 13% uh, of Americans are black, you don't see 13% black faces on stage speaking. You don't see 51% women on stage. Mm -hmm. So defining that gap, that inequity mm -hmm. is easier than like the rest of the thought process of how to and how aggressively or what actions can and should be taken to look into that that clear gap. I don't know what to do beyond identifying the gap. Right. Right. Shit. I, I, I can I can jump in here. Please. Um part of it I think is um who is elevated, who is trained, who is called to the front. So I think in those spaces, here, where where we will begin, where we will begin is with uh, perhaps one or two, 
right? We'll begin with one or two and they will be tokens and they will probably feel like tokens, right? And so there's a lot of pressure on a token. Does that make sense? That is the, the one kind of representative. So I can't make a mistake, right? If I get out there, then I represent everybody that's going to come behind me. And if I make a mistake, there's not going to be another, another chance. And, yes. And, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but see, but that, that's part of the privilege I have is I, if I go up there and I stink as a speaker, people are going to mm-hmm. say, Mark was a bad speaker. It doesn't reflect. Right. Right. I, well, that was a mistake to invite white men to speak. Right. right. Exactly. Matter. So right. I, and, that's, and that doesn't occur to me. That's my blind spot. Right. So thank you for sharing that perspective. Uh, right. But, right go, go well, but, but so what I'm saying is, so one of the ways that we think about getting around some of that is we do um, things in, um, in cohorts, right? You, um, when we hire in the academy, you bring in a set of people instead of just one person. Um, um, when you bring in speakers, maybe you bring in a set of speakers, you give them opportunities to practice, to talk with each other. You, um, you make sure that they have mentors. Um, you make sure that they have coaching. Um, you invest in them for the long haul, right? Um, you become a, a sponsor and a supporter, an ally, um, a coach. Um, and I think, too, that you um, one of the other things that we see in literature and in the, in the scholarship on this is that when women, when there are uh, more than one woman um, in a diverse team, that women are more likely to speak. The, the, the more isolated a woman is, the more quiet she is likely to be. Um, and so we can see similar kinds of outcomes with people of color. It's not always the case. It's not always the case. There are sometimes when a, a singular individual can rise to the top and be very outspoken. So these things are not prescriptive, but they are observational. We can see those kinds of things in observation. So how do you change that? Well, you need to have internships and you need to make sure that you don't fire your intern because they're five minutes late or because of whatever. That means that you're having conversations with this person about what it means to to do this and what it means to try. That means when people are quiet, you ask them to speak up and you encourage them and you give them a chance to make a mistake and the mistake is not deadly. That is one of the privileges of white malehood. It's not for everybody. There are white men who make a deadly mistake at the beginning. And here I'm not, I know I'm using the term deadly, um, but I mean career-wise, right? Not physically. Um, and, yeah. Right, right. And so so I think that that's part of it. When I, in, in one of my previous positions, I felt like there was an unspoken rule. So sometimes people would share things with me. I wouldn't know that I, w- I shouldn't repeat them. I thought if you're telling me, I should tell everybody. It's my personality, not a secret but a strategy, right? So how do you get a promotion where you go on the job market, right? So, you know, you establish your, your, your um, value out on the job market and then somebody here will say, you're great and we're going to want to keep you so we can we create competition. Well, I repeated this to other people. I didn't know that I shouldn't have because it was really private, but that person never came to me to say anything to me. They just stopped talking to me. It was so perplexing that I didn't understand what happened for years, Right. So one of the things that I say, um, um, we do this workshop on um, building inclusive research environments. It's, it's called IRI, which I kind of like because it's kind of, you know, funky Caribbean. But um, but and when you're building an inclusive research environment, one of the things that you have to do is make um, implicit norms explicit. Right. 
So if there are things that you are doing quietly, that you would have conversations with someone over coffee or what have you, I'm not saying all of that goes away, but you got to make those things more explicit. What are the norms of my lab? What are the norms of my office? What are the norms of the department? You have to pull sometimes people aside and not say, well, they should have known. Instead, you say, I don't know if you were aware of this, right? Um, and you help people to navigate because part of the reason why some people are perpetually privileged is that they have, they have knowledge of the inside game. And if you don't have knowledge of the inside game, then what you really think is, boy, if I just work harder and, 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 I, and I do more and I get more degrees, that's what's going to protect me. And that is not necessarily the case. Um, so part of it is really those allies and those sponsors who are going to help you to, to understand and interpret what you're hearing. And I think we're going to need that size, but it's most important for the women and the people of color who have typically been on the margins. That's, I think, how to change that space. It's no different in the academy. Or if I study Congress. Congress is 85% white and male. I mean, that's astounding. That's, that represents the entire nation. Mm -hmm. And so... How do we change that, right? These are sticky These are sticky problems. They're sticky problems, but they're not impossible ones. And there are strategies out there already about how to do it. Mm -hmm. I was just um, thinking about something I've heard Val say, you know, who's not in the room? Who's right. not at the table? And so as you look at, uh, you know, lean steering committees, as you look at Kaizen teams, um, as you look at uh, who's leading the performance huddles um, and who's taking part in that, um, who's, who's underrepresented, who's not, you know, at the huddle, at the table. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, there's all sorts of opportunities when you begin to ask that question and reflect on it. Um, as a consultant, you know, I, I lead those Kaizen teams, you know, I help designate who the leaders and co-leaders are uh, for those rapid improvement events. And so, you know, I can begin having that conversation with leadership to say, hey, who, who might we, you know, um, give an opportunity to, uh, to lead? Right. Well, if I may, then, then because those kinds of conversations are difficult, I think. So we can think about it right now, but doing it in action. And so how might you do that in action when you say, you know, who, who is missing from this table and why are they important? Right. And so um, and part of it is that they, who would bring a valuable perspective that we don't have that is um, instrumental here? Um, I think another thing, um, uh, I, I helped to create an organi organization where um, uh, there were a lot of, of women who were running the organization. This was undergrads. And boy, they were so intolerant with the, with the, the male student. And he was captain of the football team. He's clearly a leader. But he would not respond to the emails. These girls sent 75 emails, right? They were emailing all the time or texting each other. And they wanted him to be part of this communication stream. And he hated it. He, did, he wanted to be the person to come in, you know, when are you making a decision? I hope you make a decision. But I'm not going to do all of the debating. And um, they viewed that as him not showing interest and not being committed. It was a misinterpretation of the moment. But because the girls had power, they kicked them out of the leadership team. That's an unusual kind of circumstance, I think. But it's not so unusual in terms of how we evaluate. And the question that we need to ask, because what I think will often happen 
is we'll lock on to something that this person does differently from us, right? And we'll say that that thing is the most important thing to determine the outcome. Mm -hmm. And we'll do it perhaps without being aware. That's the implicit kind of bias. Like um, one of the ways that we see it, if, if I may, just really briefly, is that we sometimes see it in classrooms. Again, I have two black sons, so I see how it plays out. And I know that they get noticed for bad behavior. Mm. I mean, they, they are going to roughhouse. They're going to do whatever it is that they do in school. And they will be singled out from time to time. And they're good kids, I'll say that. But they will sometimes be singled out. And I will have to go in to say, who else was at the table? How did their, uh, what kind of um, uh, uh, punishment did they receive? Or what kind of reprimands did they receive? And it will often be the case that the reprimand is different. And, and I will need to bring it to someone's attention because they are unaware. And what I say is that the statistics are telling the story. It's mm -hmm. not about you individually, but if I look at the statistics of what happens in public school education, it is that black students are more highly disciplined than white students. Um, that they are more likely to be expelled or suspended or to have um, other kinds of consequences. This is not accidental. It adds up, it aggregates from individual acts that people are engaged in without review, without check. And so these are the kinds of things that I think that we need to pay attention to. So maybe just one other question on the conference gap, mm -hmm. the inclusion the diversity and inclusion gap. How quick, I mean, like if, if I were running a conference, well, conferences are happening right now, but virtual conference where I'm starting a new podcast and I'm looking to get, um, uh, make sure I don't have blind spots and just invite the white males right. that I know and work with most. Right. Or let's say in any settings like, um, cause people will balk at the idea of let's say quotas. Like, well, right. you know, so, but, but what would you recommend that, that, I'll personalize it. What what should I do to make sure the people on stage reflect American society, that the mm -hmm. guests that I have on a podcast reflect society? I'll, I'll give credit. I think one, one conference that has at least made good efforts, I don't know their outcomes, but the Lean Startup Week event run by Eric Reese and others, they've made statements, I can find them on their website, saying we value diversity and we, we encourage. So how much should we just encourage people of all mm -hmm. um, ethnicities and genders and race and um, you know, all, all elements of diversity, encourage, like specifically say you are welcome? Mm -hmm. Or how much do we have to like actively go out and network and seek out diversity? Is it enough to say like, hey, right. diversity is welcome? Versus, and, and again, Lean Startup Week, I right. know they've made those. We are going to actively mm -hmm. right. try very hard to find those people because we know they're out there. Right. right. What, I mean, what, what would you recommend? Well, what, what should I do? Again, I'll push yeah. What should no, I do? No, I hear you. I, I love the question. Um, and I, I love some of the insights that you've already provided. So one of them is that um, how do we end up with homogenous um, kinds of outcomes? It's because we go to our own networks, and our networks are often fairly uh, homogenous. They're filled with people who remind us of ourselves. That's part of why we like them, right? And so... Um, so when we go only to our own networks and our networks are not very diverse, these are the, out these are the outcomes that we end up with. 
One of the things that, that we often hear in engineering or in higher education and in perhaps in nursing or in medical schools all over is this notion of a pipeline. And, and, and so they're like, oh, we need to build a pipeline. And I'm thinking, no, there's a whole pool out there, right? You, you can find it if you're looking. You have to have some intention. You do have to have some intention. And you have to recognize that oftentimes we, we um, perceive risk to be one-sided so that, so that a company will say, well, we're going to take a risk on this person. They may not be ready. And I'll, I'll put it in terms of um, gender. So we've never had a woman in this role before. We're going to take a risk. That means that person is on constant audition, constant audition. But what we don't recognize there is that that individual is also taking a risk because they're walking into a culture that is not necessarily prepared for them, right? They're walking into an existing culture that says, I'm not sure that this new outsider belongs in this space. And so we need to recognize that there's risk taking and there's trust making on both sides of this, right? And so um, there may be some errors. So, so it, I think part of it is networks, part of it is culture. The other thing is that the assets and the talent that you have that is embodied in people who are people of color or, or, of, 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 or women, right? The, the assets and resources that are embodied in them are not only directed to other women or to people of color. These people have lots of ideas. And so we need to not pigeonhole people only in talks about race or only, let's explore the degree of expertise that, that people have. I think another thing, particularly we find with women, one of the things, so um, we can think about op-eds or promotions or, or the work lean in that so many people read, like, you know, take a chance on yourself, bet on yourself. Uh, oftentimes, women will spend a lot of time, they, they will wait an extra 10 years before they will try to go up for a promotion or try something big. Whereas men, I see it in my own classroom, I used to tell the students like, um, you know, this is your, the best chance you're ever going to have is to speak in a freshman class, right? Because nobody really knows that much. And I know that the guys at the end of the table are behaving as if they do, but you know as much as they do. And it doesn't get easier from here but it is a, a different kind of relation to the culture and to the space, a different sense of belonging. And so we're going to have to encourage people who may not feel confident to do it. Mm -hmm. So there are, I think, um, uh, for us in higher education, it would be postdocs, there may be internships, there may be fellowships, um, rewards, right? Recognition, those are ways to get people to the table and to elevate them in ways that are meaningful. Um, but I also think then that um, we also have to pay attention to measures. I'm keeping my eye on the time. But um, how, do, how do we measure this? You, you mentioned, um, you know, oh, my gosh, how, you know, if we can't set a quota. Well, you know, I've, I've had some thoughts about that. I don't know exactly what the answers are. What I love about Lean is Lean has measures. So I'm expecting that we're going to find some creative ways to get at, um, you know, the pluses and minuses that are helping people move through a system uh, and, you know, in whatever time period as a baseline and that are slowing people down from doing it. We ought to at least be able to figure those variables out, right? Um, but at the end of the day, if you want to change a, a one-way street to a two-way street, you say that's what we're going to do. There's not a whole lot of conversation about it. And by some um, result of willpower, it gets done. When you say that we're going to move, we're going to have wireless everywhere so that people can use wireless um, technology, you do it. Like, there's not a whole lot of conversation about it. This is, to me, a matter of commitment 
mm-hmm. and of, of stick to itiveness. Right. And, and, and right. yeah. And when you say you're going to increase sales year over year or, you know, reduce right. errors year over year. Right. Um, you uh, put that stake in the ground and you go for it. Mm-hmm. You know, and everyone's on board and leadership says, hey, this is what we're going to do. And uh, you fall in line. And you hold people accountable <laughs> right. to it. I mean, what I loved about the safety example, um, that's what I couldn't remember earlier, is that I think the gentleman said zero accidents or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I imagine, could you ever say zero racism, right? Mm-hmm. Like new racist incidents. Mm-hmm. That is audacious. But what if we could set that as a goal? Then we would we would leverage the resources to get there. Well, that's the wonderful thing about lean. Uh, perfection is what we're striving <laughs> to achieve. <laughs> you know, if you look at you, know, you mentioned earlier, Chris Paul O'Neill. You know, he's a very uh, important leader. Uh, I was very fortunate to have met him briefly. He was a guest on the podcast here um, years ago. When he set that goal of of saying at uh, at Alcoa when he was CEO, nobody should get hurt at work. You know, the goal was zero. Did they get to zero in his time? No, but I'll guarantee they reduced harm far more significantly than if he had been timid and said, well, let's try to get a 5% reduction every year. Right. You know, kind mm-hmm. of incrementalism versus saying, A, I mean, I think I've heard him use phrases, phrases like uh, moral obligation, but then there was clearly a mm-hmm. business case. Right. I, and, and, and business case, not in a direct way, but in an indirect saying, if we get good at safety, we will have what he called habitual excellence. So injuries mm-hmm. plummeted, stock price soared. But now at the same time, like it was fascinating to hear people he worked with recounting stories. He would tell the accountants, don't ever calculate an ROI on something we installed for safety. He's like, that, mm-hmm. then that kills my moral authority. Mm-hmm. We'll fire mm-hmm. you. If you do that, right? So we have this mm-hmm. balance of like, yes, it made great business sense, but it's it's more of a long term. It's the it's the right, right. thing to do, and there, there's that longer term um, outcome as a business. It seems like that's the connection to uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Right. I love it. I think that the moral obligation piece it really is measured in commitment. This is bigger than than these other things, and um, yeah. I think it's, it's values, right? What are the values that we adhere to? And, and, and one thing I would suggest that maybe is helpful in, you know, in, in, the, in these issues, um, Mr. O'Neill proved that there were the, the, the false trade-offs of people saying we can't afford safety. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not true. People in healthcare are now showing, if anyone would say, well, we can't afford patient safety, false trade-off. Maybe the same thing applies if people say, oh, well, we can't afford diversity, equity, and inclusion. False right. trade-off. Right. Yeah, right. I would agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. And costly. The illusion of that trade-off is so very costly. The problem with it is that it's in the periphery of our vision. And so we don't necessarily see it, but it accumulates and it becomes, it doesn't become less costly over time. And it's even more costly to the people who are, who are, um, in those margins. And so, but it's not without cost for the people who are in the, in the majority. It's not, right? So you pay me now, you pay me later. So, yeah. Well, I want to thank you um, both for being so generous with your time and with, with sharing a lot of, you know, thought-provoking ideas and, and, and your experiences and in being leaders um, on all of these fronts. Um, our guests here today have been 
uh, Chris Chapman and Dr. Valeria Sinclair Chapman. Um, so the consultant and the professor, <laughs> the lean thinker and uh, the, uh, I don't know, the, I'm, I'm, I'm dwindling down on, on ways of trying to describe <laughs> your combination of uh, <laughs> insights and expertise, husband and wife. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. That's the um, biggest one. <laughs> any, um, so, you know, again, you know, to be respectful of your time, but I also want to give you the last word, um, each of you, if there's any final thought that's on your mind. Um, I'd just like to uh, say thank you, uh, Mark. Um, I think uh, you're exhibiting the kind of courage and uh, curiosity, really, um, as you, you're grappling with how um, you might uh, be a good ally. Um, uh, in this um, challenge. And so um, you're going about figuring it out. And so I think this is very much a learning process uh, and will be for all of us. Uh, and uh, Lean is very much about continuous improvement and uh, continuous learning. And so um, I think I'm, I'm learning a lot from Val. She's learning, you know, Lean language as well. And um, I think, uh, you know, influencers like yourself um, that are um, stepping up and uh, figuring out how to be a good ally, um, taking time out to ask uh, these kinds of questions that you don't know the answer to yet, um, but uh, you're doing it. And, um, you trying. know, you know, often says, you know, just do it. And uh, that's what we're doing. And so we don't have all the answers yet, but um, hey, we're, we're going for it. And, uh, you know, I've got some, some learned lessons from over 20 years of uh, lean experience. Val has just as much experience on her end. And um, like uh, anyone that, uh, wants to make, um, you know, the world a better place. <laughs> um, they're rolling up their sleeves to, to actually uh, do something. And so um, I suspect this will be, um, you know, a hell of a journey. Uh, um, a lot of it will be experimental, as we uh, like to do um, on our lean journey. Um, and uh, we'll continue to plan, do, check, and act our way to a uh, better future state. Yeah. And again, I'll apologize for being late to trying to hop on the journey. Um, yeah. No, I, I would just like to say thank you both for letting me eavesdrop on, on lean uh, uh, practices. Uh, I'm learning all kind of language and stories to tell. So, so we'll see. I'm going to take it back to my crowd, and they're going to be like, "What are you talking about?" But, but here we go. This is this is going to be a, an interesting kind of outcome. And um, just in terms of the work that we're all doing in the moment that we're being called for, this is the moonshot. Let's um, let's go big. Let's go big or go home. Mm -hmm. And let's uh, let's actually see something real and grounded in terms of a, a shift. And we can do it. You know, we're all capable of it. So let's, uh, let's make something different than it, than it was uh, on May 24th. Let's make it different after that. Yeah. Well, thank, thanks again uh, to the both of you. And, and Chris, I look forward to what, what are hopefully future articles in the series at lean.org, the lean post. Uh, the first one, again, uh, for the listeners, if you want to go find these, 
Lean In, Lean Thinkers to Root Out Racial Inequity, and then the second article, our burning platform and using the five whys to think more deeply about corrective action. So um, thank you for those. Uh, Chris, again, look forward to more. Encourage everyone to go um, check those out. Um, Chris and Val, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great time. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.